Today is August 27th, 2017, and the title is Hurricane in the Desert. So I hear you guys have been studying about Haran, that Pastor Wade has been teaching you about it, and that you have learned some about what Abraham did there in the history. Is that correct? Yes. You guys with me this morning? Yes. Let's go to Genesis 12. We'll pick up in the same spot. We're going to start in 12. We'll read 4 and 5. Before we do that, though, the reason that Haran came up is Pastor Michael Hutchinson gave us a word about heading there and God would speak to us. And, you know, that's one of those things that it's not prophesying that your children are going to be born naked or some vague description about, you know, changing your direction. Or he said, no, it's worth taking time, going straight there. And if he was wrong, we would tell him so. He wasn't. We drove all the way to Haran. Let's read about what happens with Abraham here. So in the fourth verse, So Abraham left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions that they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. So come on. What do you think Haran looks like? Somebody throw out a mental image? Somebody have an idea? Do you envision palm trees, an oasis? Village? So anybody else? Got an idea? Idol worship. It's definitely known for idol worship. Teresa and I didn't quite know what to think when we're heading towards Iran. We're coming from Gaziantep. We noticed the air was getting a little hotter. A little hotter. A little hotter. As if we were driving into an oven. And eventually we finally get to this place that is where Abraham visited. We're standing on the same ground as the patriarchs. And it's this flea-bitten little refugee camp that has a couple shops and some ancient ruins that have not been, a, a, not been dug out. Haran is nothing today. It is, a, it is one of the worst places that I have ever been. It's nowhere that I would want to stay for a while. I, I mean, how hot was it there, Peyton? How hot was it there, Justin? Yeah, 115 Fahrenheit, you know, plus standing in the sand. But we got a word from the Lord. Amen. So we pulled into this little place, man, where... The sun feels like it's incinerating our skin. There's all kinds of stuff going on in Arabic in a country that speaks Turkish that tells you something. This is a special little area. We walk out into this gazebo thing that is the only little bit of sun or shade from the burning sun in the area. And we begin to worship. And by we, I mean Peyton begins to play in the heat while all of us lay down and die for a little while and pray in tongues. <clears throat> but in the midst of this desert. I'm talking desert man. A storm arose. Something opened up in the heavens and rained down on us. We felt heaven's touch while standing in one of the most inhospitable places I've seen on the planet. Haran. It's horrible. And yet there was a special kind of sweetness in that moment when God's presence was filling our lives. As if something in the heavens had opened up and poured down on us. I tell you today that you can be standing in a hurricane and yet be in a spiritual desert in your own life and not know it. You can be standing in a physical desert and there's difficulty all around you, but you be in connection with the Father and His storm is on your side feeding you. Today we want to talk about that presence of God, that storm that shows up in the desert and gives us victory. That causes us to take the inheritance. So while we're here and the storm is opening up, God reminded me of a few concepts. One thing that he put particularly on my mind was the Black Sea. We were praying that we might have some direction, and I believe that God is giving us that. So from Haran, we continue. We make some other stops. We go to Mardin, some other places. Made a short venture into Iraq. It was hotter there, amazingly enough. 44 degrees Celsius. Do that math sometime. It's ridiculous. Then we left from there and headed straight towards the Black Sea after a minor clutch repair. God directed our footsteps in a place that I would definitely not expect him to direct your footsteps. He's reminded of the fact that we often are expecting some kind of special epiphany. Like you climb up on the mountain and it's Sinai in that moment. Or one day when you get to a place, 
God is just going to make you suddenly capable for ministry or plant a church in your hands as if it's dependent upon our circumstances or we're waiting for some special day. I want to tell you that regardless of whether the weather looks like outside, the reality of the kingdom is deserts and storms. There's no middle ground. Let's go to Deuteronomy. There's a scripture that Matt found this morning that I just, it, it so perfectly illustrates what we're talking about. Deuteronomy 8, let's put verse 1 on the screen. Many of you will be familiar with this. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers. Pause there for a moment. What are you going to do? Live and increase and enter and possess. Come on, enter and possess. What are you going to do? Enter and possess. Come on, if you're going to possess something, I want to hear you possess it. Do you have it? Yes. Enter and possess. Next one. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way into the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Next verse. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone but in every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Come on. They were children of God. They had gone through the, the sea and were baptized. They had the symbolism of being born again under the Lamb. Are you born again this morning? Yes. Are you under the Lamb? Yes. Has His water cleansed you? Yes. What was told to these men who were born again, who had left a life of slavery, was I want you to hold on to every command. I want you to physically enter and possess my promised land and that he would feed you in the desert. God caused a storm to rage in that desert and it fed the people of God in difficult circumstances. And you know what? They reached that promised land. In Haran, what God spoke to us about was our land of Canaan, if you will, the place that we were supposed to go to. What is God moving in your life about right now? Are you in a desert and you don't know it? Often obstinance, this flood of this Help me with that. Dissipation. And it can blind you. You could be standing in a flood of dissipation and not realize that you're in a desert when everything looks fine around you. By the same token, you could be standing in extraordinarily difficult circumstances and yet something from the heavens is feeding you. That is the power of God. That is the gospel testimony. This battle is real. It's physical. It's not just some ethereal concept where we get saved and nothing happens on the earth. There is an actual land for you to enter and possess. Real lives, real nations that have to be taken. We have to enter and possess them. Let's leave the law. We're going to go to another passage. Let's go to 1 Samuel 22. While we're turning there, can you throw that first picture on the screen? We're going to talk about some of those stops. So, on the screen here, see the country that's called Georgia? Then we have Armenia. Everywhere south and west of that is now Turkish land. So, quite a number of years ago, this whole section where you see that little pin dropped over to the border of Armenia... That was Georgian land and filled with Armenians as well. You know what happened? Turkey decided they wanted their Indian reservation. They committed genocide, wiped them out to some extent, and took it. They did that with Mount Ararat, where Noah landed as well. It's in Turkey today. We met some peculiar people here, not on this most recent trip, the trip before that. And we got to stop in and see some of them. We're going to talk a little bit more about that as we go. You in 1 Samuel 22? Yeah. I got to get there. First Samuel 22. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to meet him there. All those who were in distress or in debt 
or discontented gathered around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. So while we were praying in Haran, the thing that God brought back to my mind was this concept, that it is a part of our function to take men who are distressed, discontent, and teach them to be mighty men. Amen. The Black Sea began to be on my mind in a way that I couldn't let go of. And the men that we met in that little town, in that picture, where it came up. So this area, because it used to be Georgian and used to have an Armenian presence, it's genetically distinct within the country. They're a mix of Turks, of Armenians, and Georgians. So they're East European, Turkish, and Armenians as well. They're strange, a little hybrid. Within the nation, they're nationalist Turks. This is where Ataturk is from, Erdogan is from, both of these regions. All of them are military men. And they're a genetically distinct people group that are the remnants of a genocide. And I tell you, if you have ever met a group of rebels and discontent men, all of these guys carry guns. They smoke cigars. They've rejected the religions of their fathers, but don't have a better alternative. They're men without anything to hold them. They don't identify with any nation. They're not Georgian, because they've been intermarried with Turks. They're not quite Armenian anymore. And their own nation has tried to kill them. These men are called Lars or Los, depending on your pronunciation. I'll tell you why these men are called Los. Because they are the picture of DCD. They are the picture of men who do not care a damn about anything in this world because they have no dog in the fight. The, these men were conscripted into the Turkish army. It's mandatory service. I want to tell you that they played an interesting role. I was standing in Istanbul with a Turkish waiter who went white as a ghost and gripped the table when he saw some of our good friends eating with us that are lost. Because these men were known from being taken from the Black Sea and put into military service for Turkey. And they're the kind of guys who show up to put down a rebellion, if you will. So they come into a Turkish area that is being overrun with Kurds. And their job is to put a muzzle on these areas. And our waiter was Kurdish. These guys, well, they're nationalistic and distinct in the world were known for not caring a damn about this world. And they were used to suppress the most difficult areas on Turkey's fronts to the point where this little region, Kurdish men all over the nation of Turkey know exactly who they are. They carry guns all of the time when they're off military service. These are some interesting dudes. I love a man named Cesar. He's uh, our first contact there. He's got a friend who, we call him Lumberjack, just because of the way that he looks. He's got a big beard, barrel-chested, carries a gun all of the time, but he's mostly Armenian descent. Anywhere you go in Turkey, they're like, I'm Armenian. My parents were Christians. Or my great-grandma was a Christian. Because there was a genocide that wiped their people out, and they don't want to be known as a targeted people group. Can you understand this? Yeah. I mean, who of you who are Jews in Nazi Germany want to say, hey, I'm a Jew in the middle of that kind of environment? Is anybody volunteering for that? Lumberjack beats his chest and says, I'm Armenian. He speaks no English. About three times at the table. What these men want you to know is that they're not quite certain what to do with Muhammad. They're not quite certain what to do with their country. They're not quite certain what to do with life around them, but they know they're ready for a fight to do something. Are you ready to do something with your nation and your country this morning? Amen. Have you grown content with the world around you? Are you like some lost men, lost, who no longer care for this world? What impressed upon my soul was that God had intended for us to come to men who are in a desert and let the heavens open up to them. Give them a real purpose in their life. Show them what to do. Tell you, our biggest struggle in this nation is that we are complacent and we fall asleep far too easily. 
God is trying to stir our souls again. One of the best things that can happen to us is something like this. It gives us an opportunity to see our neighbors who we wouldn't normally talk to. Tell you, when men get born again in other countries, the first thing they do is they go tell everyone that is around them. They work to see their villages converted. It's time that we throw away our white picket fence lives. That we be like lost men who don't have a dog in the fight other than Christ. Who are discontent, rebellious, and yet something in that cave changes them. In 1 Samuel 22, I'm going to tell you there's a storm that was brewing up. You know, and it says that David's brothers and his family came down to him. What do you remember about David's brothers at the fight with Goliath? They didn't want him. What did they say about him? Wicked heart. I tell you that if you are constantly offended fighting with your brothers, if you can't maintain unity, you're kicking against your pastors, it might be because you're not actually in a fight. It's because you're in a desert and you don't know it. David's family realized that they were in a desert, so they ran to a cave where the storm of God was brewing. And it changed their lives. They became mighty fighting men. His nephews, his nephews were bad dudes in both senses of the word, but they were useful in the military. What these men did when they realized their position and they grabbed hold of that power of God, they began to realize where they're at and the storm came, is that they physically affected the earth. They didn't just have some belief in God. They took the inheritance that God had destined for the Davidic line. And they did it at the cost of their lives as well as others. But they won what was promised. How committed are you this morning? Do you want to win the inheritance? Yes. Come on, Avambola. You want to win the inheritance? Yes. Come on, Spencer. You want to get your inheritance? Yes. We've got to think about it exactly like Joshua. We have to think about it exactly like David. There is actual lands out there that we must conquer. And the only way to do it is for this sincere, real, raw power of God that is a storm to be stirred up. Because the light, fluffy presence of God won't do it. We need tongues of fire. We need Christians who are filled with His Spirit not just speaking in tongues, but it is coming out of their pores and they can't help but lay hands on the sick. Can't help but preach the gospel. We have a society that we need to turn upside down as well as the world around us. Amen. But you can't do that while you're starving to death in a desert and you don't know it. Yeah. See, we live in a land where you're in a desert, but everything looks as if it's prosperous and the, the rain is falling frequently. But the truth is we're in a desert and we need to remind ourselves we must be in the storm. With Christ, there is no middle ground. Either it's a raging storm or it's a dry desert. There really is no mediocre days. Our perception is what gets messed up. I love those men. You know why? Because they're exactly the kind of men that Christ calls. Who have nothing else, care for nothing else, and have nothing to protect. They only care about the name of their God. Those men are growing in a hunger and a knowledge of Christ. And I assure you, with men like these, we will change Turkey. Amen. I love our church. When you say amen, it's like a military brack. It's not like I'm standing in a nursing home. It sounds like I'm standing with an athletic team or I'm standing inside of an Air Force base. It ought to be this way throughout our lives. We can't allow something to be a trained reaction in church and not nearly as passionate about it with our neighbors, with our family. It's time to stir up that storm. I don't want God to sprinkle on me anymore. I don't even want Him to rain on me. When I know that there's a storm that is available, where He comes down in a cloud and fire and rain, and all of His power is available, how can we settle for less? I want the storm of God in this room. When we say the kavod, I want His thick presence in here. Who in here wants to serve the God of Elijah? I want to serve the God of Elijah. I love Chris's testimony today. Let's make that the norm. Let's go after it. Because the gospel is advancing across the world. From 1 Samuel, let's go to Psalm 97. We're going to pick up in the first verse. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. 
Let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. The biblical imagery of Christ is often surrounded by clouds, by lightning, by storms and fire. If you think of Sinai, if you think of what happened at Pentecost, Psalm 99 even says that Moses and Samuel were caught up in the cloud. God is always depicted as entering the earth in this kind of way. So we have his parousia. He comes to the earth as a gentle lamb. But we need to remind ourselves that that has come and gone. When he's coming back, he's clothed in darkness, lightning, and fire, and he's descending upon the earth to take back his physical land. Brother Tristor has a heart for Israel, and I love it. What I want to do is see the Muslim lands around Israel be born again and bring the gospel back to his doorstep. We have physical lands to take that really are in a desert, and we have to cry out for that storm of God. We can't accept less than that. We have to have a desperation that stirs up and says, I need that kind of power because I know my God has it. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. Lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the people see his glory. All who worship images are put to shame. Those who boast in idols worship him. All you gods. <laughs> the storm of God is a blessing if you're Abraham. It's a blessing if you're a couple of directionless men inside of Turkey crying out for him. It's a blessing if you're distressed and you're discontent and you come to the Davidic king and ask for help. And I tell you, that same storm of God will not be a blessing to those who do not repent and find themselves being goats. He's one and the same. Salvation and the prophets is accompanied by vengeance and retribution. They're not two separate things. They're the same event. Amen. See, I'll let Teresa share about this more on a later day. But when you're talking with a man from Syria who had his fingernails pulled off, was beaten and abused in every way that you can think of beyond physical abuse, if you will, scarred on his face, and you find out he's 19 and he looks like he's 30, and he's the only one of his family that escaped from a prison with ISIS, salvation for him is not just a conceptual idea. To be saved is to literally be saved, like from an advancing army. Then you find out there's a single guard who was a Christian somehow in the prison that talked to him about Christ and then he runs into Treaster. Salvation is not such an ethereal thing, but it is, I need you in this desert now, Lord. I need the full power of God because I'm actually at war. They're hunting my life. The strong bulls of Bashan are not somebody being mean to me at work. They're the strong bulls of Bashan. It's not an offense with your brother. It is an actual bull of Bashan trying to gore your life out. It's time for us to rise up in the power of God. Call upon that storm that descends. The Psalms, David says, Lord, come down and help me. He heard my cry and my distress. And he mounted the cherubim clothed in darkness and he scattered the enemies. That is our God. That is our God who comes ushering into our defense. Puts hurricanes to shame. He puts lightning to shame. What he is is more than that. But how much of it are we tasting? Are you living in a desert filled with fear and anxiety when you're supposed to be filled with power from on high? We have to make this a black and white scenario. There is no mediocre Christian life. It's not a Christian life at all if it's mediocre. Either you're filled with the power of a God and you're seeing that storm descend, no matter what the circumstances look like, or you're dying in a desert and you just don't know it. From Psalm 97, let's go to Isaiah 40. See what else the prophets have to say about this concept. Before we start to read, you're going to have to help me. Maybe I'm just a little sensitive today. You guys with me? Yes. Do you want what I'm talking about? Yes. Let me hear you cry out. 
Let, let me hear you cry out. Let's read Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. God has sent emissaries to go into the desert who are willing to cry out for the presence of God, who are willing to cry out for that storm, who will not accept anything else. Isaiah 40, the third verse, speaks about the coming of the Christ and one who would stand in the desert and say, prepare the way. The storm of God is coming. That lightning, that fire that melts the mountains, it will come. No one is going to stop it. Look at the 10th verse. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and his arms rule, rules for him. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. Does anybody remember that from Acts class? This morning we want to focus on a kingdom that is real, upon a God who will come in storm and power, who likes to put us in a desert so that we will cry out to him and see his power come. That scripture from Deuteronomy that Matt gave is perfect. The only time you get fed from, with manna is when you're in a desert. If you want the supernatural in your life, stop avoiding the desert. Stop putting yourself out of his reign. When you're obstinate, when you're trying to fight for what you want, whether it be your fear, your victimization so that nothing is required of you, or to fight for what you want to add to your life. What you're doing is shutting yourself off from the reign of heaven. You're putting yourself in a desert and not calling out to him because you're asking for what you want only. We're no longer crying out for the storm of God. But when we begin to lay that aside and we no longer care for it, we're like those men who have no nationality, who have no genetic ancestry. They only have one thing to fight for. And we cry out to our God, he will enter in like a storm. His rain will fall. It floods everything. Lightning is incredibly destructive. You see what tornadoes do. You should read 1 Kings 19 sometime. I'll tell you, the voice of God is more powerful than any natural disaster that you could see. And He will come ushering in for you. I want that. Do you want that today? Yes. His reward and His recompense accompanies Him. We have to learn to cry out like one who is in the desert, in the wilderness, and knows that the king is coming, who has his reward and his recompense with him. One might ask, what is this going to produce? Let's go to Mark 1. We'll see exactly what it did. Mark 1, we're going to pick up in the very first verse. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It was written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Now keep in mind the context of Isaiah 40. That this wasn't just the Lamb of God is going to come and take away your sins. It's that Later, he's coming with reward, recompense, and vengeance in his hands, and it depends on which side of this line you fall. Because they knew Isaiah, even when we do not. See what the response is. And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. See, the message that the king is coming prepare the way, didn't stop when Christ was crucified. I assure you, he is coming back. There is a specific land that he is going to take, that he is going to come put his feet upon, that he will stand and defend and crush enemies in. This is a real battle. The reality is the desert and the storm, not the bubble that we live in. We have to remind ourselves of that again and again because the flood of dissipation It will confuse you. It will delude you. It will make you think that you're standing firm when you're not. The only way to do it is to be utterly dependent upon our God and crying out, Lord, let your storm arise in my life. I don't care what it brings. Let the floodwaters rise. I want you and I want a drink of your spirit. 
I want to talk about a slightly uh, a related subject. I don't know what bedtime stories you read your kids. In Stephen's household, I read missionary stories. I, I didn't play video games and cartoons. If you want to raise a man, it's really a bad way to do it. I was listening to a book called The Heavenly Man by Brother Yoon. I heard some of the ladies in the church were listening to it when we came back from Turkey. This is a childhood book of mine, like from Gabriel Sutherland down, something that I had read along with the stories of the prophets out of Hebrews 11. And in it, after revival sparks inside of China, they decide to come together and form something that sounded a lot like the one association. And then I find out that the core scripture that they built it upon was Isaiah 49, 12. Can we put that on the screen again? See, they will come from afar, from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. To some of you that will be vaguely familiar, familiarize yourself with it, please. Some of you should know exactly what that is. The Chinese church formed a one association based upon Isaiah 49, 12. And their focus is sending out missionaries to evangelize the regions between China and Jerusalem. And it's their back to Jerusalem movement that they want to see the gospel brought back to the Jews. Can I tell you that this is the pattern? That our way of life is how it is supposed to be. Amen. That it is not for some special mission strip. It's not for Pastor Wade or Pastor Matt or Peyton. It is for every man. When you realize your state and you cry out for that storm, he will come and enter with power. He will move in your life. He can change your circumstances. In that cave of Adullam, you can go from a temperamental daffodil into a mighty fighting man. You don't have to be at war with your brothers anymore. You don't have to be a slave to sin anymore. You don't have to be a slave to your thoughts and fear anymore. It's time to cry out to our God. Can you say you'll prepare a way? I'll prepare a way. That starts in your own hearts because we have an actual land of a swan to take. Just as a reminder, a swan goes all over Babylon, Assyria, up to the gates of Jerusalem. It touches part of Egypt and all of Turkey. This is the region that we're, Islam has dominated now. The actual kingdom of a swan is the heartland of Islam. And we have demonic powers raising up that look as if they might be the beginning of an antichrist movement. We're not going to Turkey just because it was a cool vacation spot. We're, as a church body, we are investing our time, our money, our lives into an area that God has already spoken and moved on other nations with the exact same scripture and purpose because it is that important. Amen. It's not just a charity. We actually have a purpose to accomplish here. The kingdom is real. They're living in a desert and they need that storm of God to come in. We need your wholehearted commitment. It's not a fundraising. Not, I'm not talking about Turkey. Turkey will be accomplished as you obey the Lord's will in your life and where he has planted you right here now, not some later date. You cry out to him and experience the full power of God in your life. See, if you're waiting to be filled with power, when you finally get to be in full-time ministry, or when things finally get easier in your household, or when something changes in your job, you'll never become these men. Because I've watched their lives. It was spent with day after day in the cave of Abdulam, crying out again and again and again and watching the storm of God come through. It took 5, 10, 20 years. And yet, their fruit of their labor has produced something that is holy and righteous. I want to tell you this pattern works. It works in Turkey, it works in Mexico, it works in India, it works in Kenya. The pattern of God is that men are brought into a desert so that they can depend upon that righteous storm. Think of Abraham. Think of Moses being brought out into the desert. Think of the very names of the five books of the Torah. They were brought out into the desert of sin so that God might provide for them. Oh, that we would recognize our own desert of sin and see the God of all rush in. We think of David, we think of Jephthah, we think of many of these men 
Let's just turn to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, we're going to pick up in verse 32. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms and ministered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who have became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. We're going to keep reading this, but... Pause for just a moment. Were there struggles, emotions, something someone said? Was it offense? Was it intersquabbling? Was it fights between brothers? Was it pornography? Was it some debase, simple sin? See, the reason David's brothers couldn't get along is because they were not actually in a fight. What these men did is they routed actual armies. They quenched actual fires and closed the mouths of actual lions. If you find yourself swimming in sin, if you're unable to maintain unity, take the example of the prophets and the men of God before us. Go looking for a desert that you might cry out. Because if you don't make yourself utterly dependent upon him, you will never experience the full power of God. And that never stops. We have to go deeper and deeper and deeper and be more and more dependent upon him. I remember the first time that I had guns pointed at me. I tell you that it's trivial now. Just personally, the thing that scares me the most, that when I lay down at night is on my mind, it's not fear of hell fear that I'll make it into the kingdom and not have lived a life that was worthy of the gospel and I stand next to those men and be ashamed. That I would have received his grace, that he would have cleaned my life up and that it would look nothing like the men of God who throughout history have been the example. I tell you, when you read that list, is that somehow become an unobtainable special category to you? When you read it, do you think I can do this? This is what my life will look like. Or have you categorized it along with St. Paul and the Virgin Mary and someone you venerate but don't actually live like it as a brother and an example? Because they're brothers. Let's read the beginning of 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Uzonan says, in your struggle, you've not yet resisted to the place of shedding your own blood. Is that true about you? When you read these things, does something in your soul stir up that says, I have to have that. I need that. Because that is the full power of God. I assure you that Christians throughout Egypt, throughout the Middle East, throughout Turkey, throughout China, throughout India, their lives look like that. But not all of them. Many have chosen an easy way out. It's a misnomer that everywhere you go in a foreign mission field, that they are actually wholehearted. There's just more of them that actually are than where we live. There's something very real that they can see that wants to take their life. I tell you, your circumstances are not the problem. I assure you, you're better propagated than anyone else possibly could be. W look where you're standing. What, look what these men had to do to get where they're at. They're not a hire. They didn't come into a pre-existing church to preach and collect a paycheck. It was scratched out of nothing, endured hell and back to bring it to you so that you might be equipped because there's a land that the gospel has to reach. We have to have a base of support. We have to have strong 
churches that are evangelizing the area that they're in, who build holy, righteous families and raise children who are men and women of God, not children. Not children. They raise men and women who can go out and be missionaries across the world. And when I say missionaries, I mean fivefold ministry who was sent. It's time for us to stir up an expectation that that storm will meet me in my desert. It was not just for Abraham. It was not just for Moses. It was not just for David. He can come and meet me. He can come and meet my life. He can come into my family. The God of Elijah is real in my life. And I won't settle for anything else. I want the God that moved John the Baptist to cry out in that desert. I want the God who filled the Apostle Paul and Barnabas to do what they did. The Apostle Paul was struck by God. He went blind. He's on his way to Damascus. Again, it's a desert. And yet something from the heavens, a storm of God descended in his life. And then in Damascus, the Arabian desert, something from the heavens, a storm of God descended in his life again. And then you find himself in Tarsus. Can we show up that other slide? And a man named Barnabas comes and gets him. And they go do work together. Acts 13 and 14 describe this era of their life. Take a look at this. See Gazian tap on the screen. See Achilles, these places that we've been. Over here and as well, far left-hand corner is Tarsus. In here is Konya, uh, Antioch. There's several other places up the coast to the left. This is the book of Acts right here. This is the book of Acts excluding for Jerusalem. Each of the seven churches of Revelation are here. Iconium, Lystra, Derby, all of these places are right here because a man recognized his state. He may have been prideful, but God was good to him and struck him. Then he began to cry out for a storm. And this whole world was turned upside down because he took it seriously. I've been to the towns that he's been. How many miles apart this is? This is not like going to Louisiana in your car. This is like walking to New York over and over again to track back and forth on this trade route, the number of miles that he would have walked and suffered to bring it. But why do we put Paul in a different category? Is it because he wrote the Scripture? I assure you, lots of men in Hebrews 11 were just listed who did not write the Scripture. Many of them were family men who were just working on their farms. And yet, when the storm of God showed up, they realized their state. They weren't satisfied anymore. I don't want us to be satisfied with less. It's time to raise our expectations in here that says, when I die... I will have used my talents well. I'm not going to bury them. I'm not going to take just enough of Jesus to clean my life up and make it better. I am a desperate debtor to Him. And I need all of Him. He will receive the reward of His suffering. I want to give it to Him. Because if I don't, it would not be worth entering the gates of heaven because I would be ashamed. That is the standard for our lives. And you know what? The pattern that's laid before you is that. We're not any different here than we are in Turkey, not any different here than we are in Mexico, not any different at our jobs than when we're at the grocery store. When you recognize the desert that you walk in and you're crying out constantly for that storm, he shows up in power. It's like a bolt of lightning striking the earth. When you see the power of God unleashed, when you're witnessing to a man, you see him healed. When you see their lives set free and changed, and through patient endurance and suffering, you see men discipled who turn into pastors. That is the kingdom. When you're faithfully working in the field that God has given you, propagating the ministry that he's called you to as a pillar, that is the kingdom. Attending church and going to your job and trying not to say bad words or trying to live a moderately godly life is not at all what Christ died for. I've heard a little bit about a few of the sermons these pastors have shared, and they are excellent stuff. It's a serious reminder that the sheep and goats are in the same flock, that we're not even talking about the world. We're talking about those who will fight for righteousness, who will cry out for that storm of God, and those who are content to sit in the fold and not actually be filled with power. That is the difference. Most of the parables in Matthew, all are speaking about inside the church. When I say this, I'm not just preaching to you. I'm speaking out of my own personal heart. I am not concerned that I'm going to fall away and go after the world. I'm scared that I wouldn't give Jesus my all and I would be ashamed. What talents has he given you? I'm not talking about shows. I'm talking about the things that he's invested in your life. The fact that you're sitting here is a huge, huge step up from most Christians in the world. 
Tell you, I've visited a few churches in Turkey, and it is rough. It's really, really bad. I mean, it's bad. And yet it's the only light that they've seen. How much have we been given? What kind of return ought our king expect? I need that storm from the Holy One. I won't survive without it. Turn with me to Revelation 5. You know, that same storm that showed up in the apostles' lives showed up in Acts 2 when they were filled with tongues of fire. The storm of God's also always associated with fire as well as rain. And in Acts 4, it actually shook the walls. It shook the actual physical earth that they were on because they were contending with spiritual powers that showed up in flesh and blood. See, it's not an exclusive thing. It's a reminder that there's something more at play than what you see, but what you don't see affects the people who are standing in front of you. There are spiritual powers that are motivating Islam, that are moving nations, prepping them for war, getting they're raging against the Lord. And his retribution and his vengeance is coming. We have something that we really have to become desperate for all of his power to contend. You in Revelation 5? Yeah. Let's pick up in one. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel. What kind of angel? Mighty. Proclaiming in a loud voice. Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Can you hear that question going off and then deafening silence? It's long enough to where it affects John greatly. Who is worthy? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Let's just pause. Think of the Apostle John. Many think that he was the youngest of the apostles called. He knew exactly what it was to be a child in the faith, to be a young man in the faith, to be a father, even referred to as an elder later. He walked with Christ in the flesh. He preached the gospel all over the known world. When I tell you the man had been in some deserts, if you read church history about what they tried to do to him, boiled him in oil, all kinds of things trying to kill him, I imagine nothing was worse than watching all of your friends die. Watching every one of the apostles die and being the only one left and watching the condition of the church and bringing a life-giving rebuke in the middle of their desert, hoping that the storm of God would rain on them again and bring revival. I can't imagine what that was like. And yet the man who has been through all of this, all of that, we just read about the churches, he breaks down and he weeps and weeps because he realizes his own desperate inadequacy, his own desert in his insatiable need for God. He is so hungry and thirsty that he cannot control himself. I cannot think of a more experienced man in the Bible. He walked with Christ in the flesh, saw the church of God established everywhere, is an apostle amongst the apostles. He lived longer and had more fruitful ministry than anyone else. And yet he is crying out because he desperately wants God to rain on him again. He knows he needs that storm. What's the fifth verse say? Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and the seven seals. Rob, look at me, man. Do you guys want to know God? Do you want to know Him? The only way to know Him is to truly suffer for His name and come to that desperate place where you begin to realize who the Lion of God is because you can't know Him until you're desperate. You can't see the storm of God until you're desperate. But when you are, I tell you, there is triumph on the other side of that.
There is triumph. There is victory. There is the heavens opening up on your behalf. There is nothing that the apostles, prophets, anyone has seen that will not be available to your life. When God said, you will see greater things than these, he meant it. I want to ask you, like Hebrews 11 and 12 described, is there something that you need to throw off that is hindering? Have your expectations been so lowered that you read about the men in the Bible and you have no desire or hope to be like them? Or expectation that you will be? If you're fighting for righteousness, if you're fighting to be like those men, God will meet you where you're at. I know many of you are. I know many of you in the room. Also, some of you are temperamental daffodils. Do you know the Lion of God? Is that just a name? Or has His weighty presence been opened up to you and it is pouring over your life? I want to implore you today. It's time to get desperate because we've got work to do. We can't settle for less. There are nations, kingdoms, works of service for every man in this room to accomplish. Every woman in this room to accomplish. For every one of your children to accomplish. If you've been setting up a righteous masculine standard for your children, or a righteous feminine standard for your children, or have you been teaching them to stay children? What has your life shown the world? It shows up most ardently in your children and then reflects to converts and people around you. What does that look like? I want to tell you that in my own soul, I'm having to become desperate because I don't really know who the lion is until I do. You really don't know what salvation is like until you need deliverance, vengeance, and recompense coming in. That is the biblical salvation. The God who comes in with thunder and lightning and saves your life. Begin to pray. I am proud of this church. I love this church desperately. I especially love your pastors. And I can feel that many of your expectations have gotten so pitifully low that you're not shooting for success anymore. That you begin to realize that you have areas that are goat-like and you're not trying. I tell you, Jesus Christ will help you. When you're depending upon him, his rain is falling on you, these men will help you. What God has destined for your life cannot be missed because he gave you talents that we all need. He didn't put you on this earth and pour out his blood upon you because you were worthless. He valued you, but it is only in him that you're of any value. We have to begin to stir up that desperation. Stand to your feet and pray with me.